This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Post Questionnaire. 35 questions giving us insight into what makes creative people tick. So, okay, so, um, hi, Seth. Hi, Caroline. Hi, hi. So, uh, we're really happy to be here today with Seth Rod. Thanks, first of all, for joining us on the Post Questionnaire. Yeah, I'm really happy to be here. I'm happy to be asked really deeply personal questions. (laughs) (laughs) I can share that with some of our other potential uh interviewees who are nervous about how personal they are but we found it really rewarding so no, no i I've, I've said this to people actually when i in the past have tried to sort of give an elevator pitch on my personality i've said that i'm the kind of person who you can call me up at three o'clock in the morning and ask me a really deep question and i will give you an earnest answer like i'm i'm i i wake up for like <laughs> for like deep provocative questioning. Well, we should tell our listeners it's two in the afternoon on the East Coast. You know, <laughs> we're all in lockdown in our respective abodes. And um, just two words I wanted to say, Seth. Uh, so I always read what you write. So the last thing I read is you wrote about um, pictures of stoops in Brooklyn during mm. lockdown, which is a beautiful piece, I thought. <laughs> Thank in, you. Hyperallergic. Mm. Your staff writer and editor. And then this year... I also want to mention that you won the Rapkin Art Journalism Prize. Congratulations. Yeah. That's a bit really wonderful. And then the book that we've talked about quite a bit, the personalization of the museum visit, which is trying to rethink what museums are in the 21st century with obviously more urgency even now when museums have to rethink even how they're going to operate for the future. And we'll put the links to this book and... Um, on on the podcast, um, and a lot of people, are, of course, familiar with what you write, uh, 
uh, with hypoallergic all the time. So thanks for being here. Yeah, yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity. I do. Yeah, Carrie, you're going to start. I think you're going to start us out. Let, I'll give you the the, the first both questions. Oh, sure, that's great. Uh, so, Seth, we'll just get right into the deep three in the morning type questions. Mm-hmm. What What is your idea of perfect happiness? Uh, so I gave a version of what I'm about to say to a coworker a few years ago um, when we were sitting around. I'm just killing time. And I said that I thought my version of happiness would be a very clean, well-organized, well-lit white room with a window and everything in this sort of place. Um, And actually now I think that that's changed. I think that my vision of happiness is actually, and this is not, and what I'm about to say is not due to the pandemic and not not due to having been locked down for a while. It's actually being at a get together with friends in a quiet place with really good food and really good wine, but just being with people I like. Just that, that's really it. I mean, I, I just, I love being in a, a situation where, where, the, where it's so convivial that it feels, it feels, it feels like it feels right to be a human being in that moment. Like it feels like, okay, this is, this is what, this is the benefit I get. This is the reward I get for being a human being on this planet. The second question at three in the morning that wakes many of us up. What is your greatest fear? Oh, okay. So, ah, I'm going to be brutally honest about this. Um, Although I, I really, I don't, I kind of don't want to say, I don't want to admit it, but my deepest fear would be being paralyzed, being in some ways um, prevented from, from being able to move. It's really important for me to just be able to move in a way that I do now to have the sort of um, bodily control that I do. Um, I tore my meniscus or what was my ACL a few years ago. Oh. And and I was limping around. And, and here's the thing about the, 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 the kind of injury I had. Going upstairs was fine. Going downstairs, I couldn't negotiate at all. I had to do them one at a time. And I remember there was a, t- there was a moment in winter when I was um, trying to negotiate the down slope um, to get into the subway station. And a woman was in front of me with a baby carriage and like three kids and she was slipping on the snow and ice and she just kind of fell. And there's nothing I could do, like literally nothing. I was behind her and I was just kind of gimping my way along and I just felt completely impotent and useless. And I really don't like that feeling. Yeah. Oh, I feel for you. I've had both my ACLs operated on and the recovery is bizarrely really long. And as you say, the the going down the stairs and the subway stairs are just the worst. And yet when you're well, it's such a, we take for granted how easy it is to walk down the stairs. Right? Yeah. You run down them two at a time. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Not anymore for me at any rate. I still don't, I still don't feel... Uh, I don't trust myself trying to at a time, but you're exactly right. I read somewhere an interview with um, Robert De Niro when he was prepping for that movie, The Irishman, that fairly recent yeah. film. 
yeah, where yeah. he played himself young and old. Yeah. And I thought of my and now your ACL injuries when I got to the part where he said something that um, Martin Scorsese told him that the main giveaway that he wasn't really the 30 year old he was playing in some part of the movie was that he didn't move with enough confidence and speed on the stairs. Right. And yeah. Right. So I think that right. impotence and also maybe that feeling of um, of aging or kind of your body not not being what it what it was uh, is uh, is tough. Now, hopefully this will not be also your answer to number three. Uh, what is the trait you most deplore in yourself? Deplore? Deplore. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay, that's relatively easy. I really don't like the fact that I'm often late for things. It's something I struggle with most of my adult life. I'm just shit at showing up on time sometimes. I mean, here's the thing. I can do it. Like, if I focus in and I, like, you know, make my to-do list, at the, you know, upon getting out of bed in the morning, and I really... Uh, determined to be on time for something, I can do it. But man, it is not my go-to MO. It just isn't. Mm -hmm. And um, I just wish it were. I do. I I, I train at this um, Shaolin temple and my Shifu, he's very, very strict. And if you arrive at 12 o'clock and one second, he says, Amitabhu, go home. <laughs> not kidding. And he's not kidding at all. And he's not, he's not, he's smiling, but he's not joking. And you have to go home and you cannot be there. And the whole uh, like, one of the lessons, there, there's only one or two lessons. And one of them is just be early in life. Right. For everything, be early. He's, the whole practice of Shaolin is to be ahead in some ways, to always be ready to respond. And it's a kind uh, of obsessive, but it's so rigorous and strict. I love that. And, there's a certain, it's interesting because some people have come in and said, oh, you know, I actually didn't have my shoes. And if you come and you haven't tied your shoes, he will also send you and go home. Don't take, you can't take class today. Mm. And if there's two students, he'll send both of them home if it's 12 or one or something like that. He does not care. He doesn't mm. anything with it. So, so, okay. I love that. So it, but it, but it, it induces such anxiety that you kind of. Well, or, the, or it like, or you internalize that, right? And you are, you are early. Right, which is what I'd love to do. Yeah. Oh, Uli. All right, my next here. What is the trait you most deplore in others? Oh, good question. I and this I'm this may be, end up being a screed. Um, <laughs> I live in the South Bronx and have lived here for a little over six years. And I've lived in other places. I've lived in London. Um, I've lived in uh, Los Angeles, in Long Beach. And I've also lived in Jamaica. I was born there. I will say that I tend to see more of this here in the South Bronx, but it could just be that I'm particularly attuned to this. Is people living their lives in such a way as if other people don't matter. There's a way in which particularly in New York. I think this happens a great deal in London, less so in Southern California. But there's a way in which people treat the city as if it is an extension of their own personal space. So they'll eat something and just throw the wrapper on the street. And, 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 and it, will, it will happen like, routinely throughout the day. I'll notice it. It happens in such a way that clearly it's ingrained in the culture that 
that the way the sort of shared communal, um, what's the word I'm looking for, um, shared space of the city is not treated as with respect as if you as if other people also share that space with you. I think that attitude, that feeling, um, that worldview, I find really hard to take. And it it's it it it, it yeah it almost infuriates me. Um, and I think it to, to be fair, it's also an extension of or may also be, this is my reading at least, an extension of this feeling that people are oftentimes in their lives as if they don't really want to be there. They're not present in themselves. They're not living in a way. They, it feels like a lot of people carry around their lives like they're burdens to them. Mm. And so they act from that place. And I really don't like that either. Um, go to the next question. Which living person do you most admire? Oh, that's easy. Brian Stevenson. Brian Stevenson is one of the most ethical, humble, um, um, self-motivated social champions I know of. I mean, he he started the um, the um, what is it? The Equal Justice Initiative. Yes. Um, and um, what else? Um, he wrote a book called Just Mercy. He's been yes. a, he's been a defend uh, an, an attorney who's been defending people on death row, and he was the one who initiated the National uh, Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery. In Montgomery, okay. exactly. So he yes. built a memorial to commemorate those who've been victims of racial terror lynchings. Right. He's been an an advocate against the death penalty, but actually helped people on death row. Precisely. Yeah. yeah, I've seen the movie Just Mercy, Just Mercy too. Um, it, he is a, just, it, it comp I am completely admiring of him. And he is an example to me of what a human being can and should be. Okay, great. Well, that would be, he would be a great guest also. Thank you. That's a great Yeah. Idea. Yeah. 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 Uh, one more, then, Carrie, you go back. Uh, what is your greatest extravagance, Seth? Huh. Probably, I'm looking around my room as, I, as, I'm, as I'm thinking, probably, but it's not that great. It's, <laughs> I mean, of the things in my life that I've spent money on, I mean, that's what I think of extravagant. I mean, I could guess, I guess I get to talk about extravagance of time, but eh, I'm extravagant with my time a lot. Um, I lavish time, I lavish myself with time, like I and take my time getting out of bed, I take my time with conversations, but I suppose like objects, I mean, the thing I've spent the most on is probably the computer I'm actually talking to you on or through, mm. but I did buy a diamond ring last year, which cost less than a thousand dollars, cost more than 500, but less than a thousand. <laughs> That it looks extravagant because it's black diamonds and it really catches the light. So that when I'm when I have it on, I don't have it on today. Um, and I'm at a dinner party. Like it, it really. I noticed that it's kind of mesmerizing. And for that reason, I really, really like it. It just feels extravagant, though. <laughs> it just feels like it feels very sort of bling bling <laughs> it, i was gonna say it does feel like rihanna or something yeah, yeah 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 it does that's great that's great. yeah <laughs> but time actually i like that too that you give yourself time mm -hmm. 
No, that was one of Proust's greatest ongoing complaints was the degree to which he was too extravagant with time. Uh, ah. he was, so, um, so, but I think it's 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 interesting, especially in the context of what you were just saying about New Yorkers sort of not thinking, not being present, throwing things away. The idea of taking your time, getting out of bed, taking your time in a conversation that also seems very counter to a lot of the. Um, the way we have traditionally lived our lives, I think, in New York City, at least before the pandemic. Agreed. Agreed. I mean, it's too, I think life in New York is really too, um, it's too, yeah, we treat too many things as disposable. Yeah. And yeah. we just kind of go through them. Yeah. yeah. Well, what is your current state of mind? Right now? Yes. I guess right now in this moment or maybe right now in this broader moment. Uh, well, right now I'm actually doing one of the things that I, that is one of my favorite things to do, which is to engage in a real conversation with people I like and respect. So mm-hmm. my f- current frame of mind is buoyant, even hopeful. Um, yeah, I, I'll, I'll go with that. Oh, that's great. What do you consider the most overrated virtue? It's a very American thing, and it's not a classic virtue, although it's connected to a classic virtue, which is this idea of business acumen, of being good with money, of being able to make money. I think, and I'm going to try to pick my words carefully here, It's a fucking debacle that the U.S. mainstream American culture has been founded on this notion that businessmen and businesswomen should be at the sort of apex of our culture. Like, we should be running our country like a business. These things are ridiculous to me. And they're kind of anti-human. I mean, ultimately, if you reduce people to the abstractions of um, figures in a profit and in profit and loss columns, you are completely missing out on all the rich possibilities of being a human being in the world. So that I particularly despise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, I have a friend who was recently talking to me a little bit about this at ha- having been re- before lockdown at a dinner party in New York with some very rich, successful business types. And this friend of mine is a painter. He said that one of them turned to him at one point and said, if you're so smart, why are you so poor? And my friend who's very quick responded, if you're so rich, why are you so stupid? Which I did just think was fantastic. Bing. Yes, being, being, yeah. being. Yes, right on the nose. Yes, I love it. Or, but I like your answer even better, that it's, you know, it's dehumanizing to... Yeah. to think it's a quality it's a virtue and you're right it's, it does seem like a kind of classically american value uh oh i'm sorry now it's willie's turn oh. yeah and it's it's interesting it's a confusion of value and money and success sort of it's this kind of strange confusion of what is valuable that it's just measured in dollars and cents of course. right right and the thing is that classic um virtue would have been um what's the word um not parsimony but um being sort of careful with money, being um, mm-hmm. not not extravagant, right? Like being yeah. prudent or something. I don't know. Like, yeah, yeah, right, yeah, right. Being prudent in, in some ways with with thrifty. money, but some thrifty. What? 
Thrifty, exactly. But that somehow warped in the American mindset to become about making profit at any and every opportunity. That's bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, On what occasion do you lie? Ah, good question. I make it a point in my life to tell the truth. I would estimate ninety-eight percent of the time. Oh my god! Yeah, no, I, I and especially to friends and lovers, especially then, um, and especially in my art writing. Like even even in cases where I don't like something and and I know that I know that people are going to have a hard time swallowing that, I am, I am honest. The times I do lie, I allow myself to lie. I lie. I lie about small things. Like if someone calls me up on the phone. And instead of saying them, saying to them, oh, I was in the bathroom, I'll say, oh, I was like reading an email and that's why I'm, I, 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 didn't, I didn't pick up. You know, like small lies, like, oh, I was late because I was on this phone call where I was late because I just fucking slept late. Like, you know, stuff like that. Like this, the things where I don't, I don't think I'm going to be really consequential, mm-hmm. I'll let myself do that. But if they're if they are of consequence and I think they're they're important, I won't because that's a way of holding myself accountable to myself. This is Seth, I mean, my admiration for you as a critic is that actually in your criticism, you actually argue and explain why you have a certain assessment of someone's work, but you do not like pull punches or you it's clear you do not shy away from saying something that is probably not popular or you're not sharing the popular sentiment of someone's success or esteem so you've taken positions on art that is valued monetarily very highly and you're saying this is this is actually the most shite yeah yes (laughs) most meaningless thing so the kind of honesty and criticism which is actually quite important for a critic not to lie yeah and in 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 a world where Parties writing for the art world where value, meaning, and monetary value are all conflated and confused that you actually yes. have to do that. Yes, and I try to. I mean, I take pride in that. I do. I have to I have to say thank you for noticing that, Uli. I, this, it's really important to me that I do that. Um, it, it, again, because it's, as you say, it's, it's a rare quality in this discourse. Yeah. And yet, in theory, criticism is meaningless if the person isn't being truthful, right? Precisely. Precisely. So, yeah. yeah. Um, moving from the, I won't say the sublime to the ridiculous, but from the serious to the maybe slightly less serious, what do you most dislike about your appearance? Oh, um, yeah, I can do this. So I have this scar that it's not very obvious, but it's a small indentation that runs from about the inside of my eye down to... Uh, somewhere like midway bridge of my nose, which I think I got when I was a kid in Jamaica and I said something smart to some girl and she hit through a rock and hit me in the, in the face with it. Oh. Yeah. Well, yeah. Jamaicans can be coarse, um, <laughs> as my friend Lawrence says. Um, I don't like that about my parents. Um, it's not a big deal, but... I don't like it. I kind of wish, like, I'm not a person to, like, go get cosmetic surgery at all, but I just kind of wish it wasn't there. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, if it's a consolation, I can't, we're on Zoom, and I can't see it at all. So I'm, I'm straining. Still, really still not. 
Okay. No. Okay. No but, worries. But yeah, that doesn't, you know, it, that doesn't uh, undermine the idea that it would be your least favorite thing, even if it's about yourself physically, even if it's not something others can see. You know, if you can feel it there. Right. Yeah. 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 You may you may have to look up the girl and talk to her and, and go through a lot of process. Mm-hmm. <laughs> have you said something brutally honest about her art that's funny that's funny <laughs> so um which living person do you most despise oh that's a hard one um because there's a laundry list um i mean agent orange is an obvious one but most i don't think he's worth that um i mean henry kissinger's up there um I mean, the kind of the kind of um, hell he rained down, or helped rain down on Cambodia and Vietnam during the wars. It's just despicable. Um, I don't know that there is a most, to be honest. I mean, there's a there's a kind of strain in our in our political history where strong men like Bolsonaro, like um, Duarte, like Trump. Um, somehow managed to capture a nation's or region's imagination, Pinochet, um, and they carry out heinous crimes. And essentially they bully um, an entire nation of people. And the rest of us kind of stand around and go, oh, that's a shame. Why is that happening? So weird. I, I, there isn't one. There isn't one person. There just there's a. I would I would argue that there's a a figure in the human history that repeats, um, a character that keeps that keeps popping up into our plots. And um, I despise that character. I despise the strong man. What is the quality you most like in a man? And we apologize for the gendered nature of so, the question, but these date from the 1890s, and we're, we've been we chose to sort of stick with this format. Yeah, so, no, what's so. Um, quality in a man? Well, it's probably going to be the same for a woman. For me, it's um, it's that they do what they say they will do. Is mm. that they tell the truth? They yeah. and they and they live their lives that way. Yeah. Yeah. So did you answer the, the next question already? So the quality you most like in a woman is the same truthfulness? Yes, although I have to admit, with women, I do expect a bit more emotional openness, and I do look for that in women. Hmm. Um, and I think that goes hand in hand with living in truth, but I think I expect, I mean, I grew up in a very gendered household, very Jamaican family, very patriarchal. Um, I expect men to be closed. I expect men to, to not be emotionally, as emotionally available to me. Mm. Um, and I expect women to be a little more. Um, but that, you know, that's a stereotype that doesn't necessarily bear out. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, does that mean there are other, there's another quality, if you kind of have that baseline expectation for women more than for men, is there another quality you also most like in a woman? No, I still think it's like that kind of emotional, deep emotional honesty that like, 
that she does what she says she will do. Which words or phrases do you most overuse? So here's the thing. Because I am as self-regulating as I am, I actually stop myself doing that when I notice the habit. So throughout the years, I can look, I can, I mean, I'd have to really think about this deeply in order to remember. But there were certain phrases I used to use. Let's say when I was a teenager, I do not use anymore. Uh, things that I said in my 20s, I don't say anymore. 30s, I mean, and, and they don't necessarily break down by decade, to be clear. But every mm-hmm. few years, I'll find a word that is particularly resonant with me in that moment. And I'll use it quite a lot. I'm trying to think if there's a word that's doing that, that's for, like that for me now. Um, maybe. I mean, here's the thing about me. Because I'm a writer, if I feel that even in one piece, in one discrete article, I'm using a particular word too much, yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm always, I'm always for. Here's a, oh, here's a, here's an interesting analogy. Apparently, in the New Yorker, I read this. I'm not sure if it's true, but I've read it. They have a policy of not doing what they call it elegant substitution. So, if you have the same word like commensurate. Mm-hmm. If you have it in, in one sentence and you have it in the following sentence, they are not going to go for changing out commensurate to something mm-hmm. else just to have the elegant substitution, right? Just so mm-hmm. it like, reads differently or better. Um, I am totally about that. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, you're totally about elegant substitution? Yes. Yeah. Yes. It drives me crazy seeing repeated when you could just use another word. It drives me crazy. Yeah. Yeah. One one further New Yorker rule I do not live by. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What or who is the greatest love of your life? Oh, wow. Okay, wow. So this is actually going to go out into the public. Okay, well... (laughs) I'm going to tell you the truth because that's who I am and this is what this is about. Um, it's a woman named Jennifer, Jennifer Stone King. We met, wow, this is really touching for me. Okay, we met at a Broadway show in the city. Bring in the noise, bring in the funk, actually. Savian Glover's oh. show. Um, at the time, I think I was an undergrad. Yeah, so I was in my twenties, and um, and I was living in the North Bronx actually. And someone had invited me to go see this show, and I left the theater at intermission to go run across the street to get a candy bar or something. And as I was leaving, I saw this tall blonde woman on on line um, for the women's bathroom, and we kind of exchanged glances really quickly. And I went and got my candy bar, came back. And then made eye contact with her again because she was just a little bit further in a slow line. And I just said the first thing that, said, that occurred to me to say to her, which is, um, you're not from here, are you? And we just started talking and uh, we agreed to meet up after the show. And we did. And she was only in New York for a few days. And we started this really hot 
affair for the next like two or three of days that she was in New York. And then we, she lived in Boulder, Boulder, Colorado, and we started this long-term relationship, a long-distance relationship. And then I convinced her that I really wanted to move to um, uh, Southern California to do my MFA in studio art. And I wanted her to come with me. And there's a lot of back and forth. And I think I, just, I was young and a lot of miscommunication. And anyway, we got there and it was really hard on us the first few months. Like grad school was at UC Irvine at the time was it was almost indescribably difficult for me. I mean, it wasn't just a culture shock of moving and having to drive everywhere and all that. It was how demanding the program was. We were constantly trying to shoot stuff and be in seminars and then TA classes. And I hardly had anything left at the end of the day to really give to that relationship. And Jennifer was not a great communicator at the time. I think she's much better now. Um, but, um, the relationship just started to fall apart and I ended up moving out, like, I think six or seven or eight months later and it was really rough. And here's the thing, how I, this is how I know I was in love with this person. After we broke up, I moved to a place that was like walking distance from where she lived, um, with her new boyfriend, Sean, um, and I used to lie in bed at night and it would, it was like, it's like the Greek definition of tragedy in that I would lie there and whether I did anything or didn't do anything, it was awful. So I would call <laughs> her sometimes and I would talk to her on the phone and she would be happy to talk to me and and we still actually ended up sleeping together. She reminded me of this years later that sometimes she'd come over to mine and, and it was still just really, really, really painful um, because I didn't really know how to be in that relationship. I certainly didn't know how to be out of it either. I haven't felt quite that way about someone since. Um, mm -hmm. There have been people who I really, really liked and, and, um, I had a wonderful relationship with a woman named Caroline a few years ago. Really adult, really supportive, really loving relationship. But Jennifer is the one that just, um, I don't know, she's like the key that happened to like find that particular lock inside me and she could turn it. This next question may, may or may not relate. When and where were you happiest? Hmm. Mm. I don't think I can be that definitive about this. I really don't. I think that there have been moments, definitely moments with Jen when I was absolutely happy. But I think, too, I want to put a finer point on this and say, for me, happiness is always episodic. There have been moments when I've been super, super content is the way I'd rather say it, that I felt like in that moment, I didn't need anything. There was no want. There was like, I just was where in that moment I was without lack. 
Um, and there've been se- there've been several moments like that with friends and with lovers, definitely. Um, um, yeah, I can't I can't pick one. Um, Zeb, which talent would you most like to have? Hmm. Yeah, it's funny. I'm, I'm thinking and I'm thinking, wow, I don't have a ready answer for that. I might venture to guess that I would like to um, I like to be a really good mathematician, maybe. Like to be able to think, no, 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 I know what it is. No, I really wish that I could play a musical instrument well. Like, I, like I'd love to be a great trumpeter. Like that would be awesome. Yeah. Okay. Good. That's, that's yeah. Music as well, yeah. I think we've talked to, right? And then we've talked to a lot of people that said they want to sing. And then we talked to somebody who can sing. And I said, oh, don't, don't fool yourself. You're not going to be happy just because of that. Right. It's not the same question. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And this again may or may not then relate to being able to play the trumpet. If you could change one thing about yourself, what would it be? So this is a little bit superficial or maybe a lot superficial. Well, honestly, I'd rather be about two or three inches taller because oh. as it, as it stands now, I am a little over average height for American standards, actually U S standards, I should say um, five ten. So just like just above average height. But if I were taller, there's a way in which being like 6'1 or 6'2 if you're a man, you get a different kind of energy around you. Like you get, like, you know, you're able to see over more people. Yeah, yeah, that's great. You know, concert type venues, whatever. But there's a different kind of bodily respect you get from other men and from women, uh, if you're a taller man. Uli, would you like to speak to that? Carolyn and I are both probably a little bit above average tall, but uh, <laughs> maybe on these questions, I can only say in a gentle way, don't fool yourself. <laughs> you know, it, it may, <laughs> they also like be, they may put like other ways, they also ways you stand out and there's a kind of self-consciousness that can come I mean, yeah. unless you hit the, and in any culture, if you hit the perfect target averageness, who in the world would want that? Right. You know, you would be a little bit above average or right. a lot of, so it's right. kind of a nice right. answer. Right. 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 Yeah. But, but Uli, you're like super tall though. You're like 6'4", right? 6'5"? 6'6", six, six, yeah. yeah. Woo! Right. So like, right. So it's like, like hugging you is like, <laughs> it's aspirational to hug you. <laughs> What's funny is that it's actually, we'll get to this question, actually. It's funny. Um, it's, it takes so much attention for some people. Mm. It yeah. produces an awkward thing because I really, like, fine, but do, don't discuss my body and my height all the time. And people right. want to investigate. And I'm like, you know, actually, okay. Uh, you know, right, there's more to me. Right. You probably have the same experience. People say, how is that? And you're like, it's being me, okay? 
Oh, right. Like people asking me like how it is to be black. Like, oh, that that's a that's a thing that happens, right? Like it happens less in New York, but man, when in it, when I was younger and I go outside of New York, inevitably I'm on a plane or some other mode of public transportation, and a white person who is clearly uncomfortable with me being black will mention oh, no. and will say something like, Well, you know, my black friend, and I'm like, you actually there there's a whole range of things you could talk to me about besides right. that. Like, yeah. And you can also, no, it, like, right now I feel this way because they want you to generalize your entire life into a, a feeling. Right. Something. Right. I always feel as if you have right. a constant feeling. Right, right, right. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. No, and it is, it's a terrible, I, my, my older, my younger brother is very, very tall and my first husband was 6'6", six, six, and both of them have reported on the fact that the way that people feel comfortable talking to them about that aspect of their body would largely in polite circles, not be accepted. So like, mm. what's it like to be so tall? Like mm. with any luck, a polite person at a cocktail party in New York city wouldn't ask you what it's like to be black. Mm. But I think what, mm. what is it like to be tall? I, I've, I've seen it happen. It, it happens less to me. I'm tall for a woman, but not that kind of your head is always well above the rest of the crowd, like is like is the case for Uli. Right. And it is strange that people revert to that. And I found actually after I left my my first husband, who was six six, I caught myself occasionally saying to people, "Yeah, my husband was really tall, like you." And it's such an awkward thing. I wasn't <laughs> implying that I was looking for a new tall husband. It just right. seemed like a, <laughs> right. an obvious issue that was looming there in the air. And right. it's it's so odd and offensive and I'm embarrassed at the number of times that I wound up doing that. So Uli, I don't think I've ever done that to you, but that's because I knew you longer ago. Mm. Um, and Carrie, as you know, I'm also, we are both literature people. You just said the husband I left, and then you would say, the husband I left was as tall as you. I'm thinking, oh my God, what did you mean? <laughs> 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 that doesn't look doesn't look like a promise. It's not a promising line to me. No. Right. <laughs> Aging Dr. Freud. <laughs> oh, my God. Completely. But, yeah. But, well, did predate that guy by, like, 20 years of my life. So, hey. I, I think your grandfather did. I'm sorry. Oh, good. good. Yeah. Um, I think this is my next question. What do you consider your greatest achievement? My PhD. Absolutely. Okay. I have never worked so hard for something. And I need to tell the story about this, um, and I'll try to make it quick. In the UK, there are essentially four possible outcomes for a viva. You may already know this, but I'm just also rehearsing this for the, for the audience. There's, um, once you've submitted the, the, we call it the thesis here in the States, they call it a dissertation. There are four possible outcomes after your um, defense or viva. Pass without corrections in which case, you know, you're a bloody genius. Um, pass with corrections, which typically happens because you don't, you, most people cannot get every single possible thing in your thesis correct. Um, third is they refer your PhD thesis. That is, they say, what's here has the makings of being a, proper, a properly researched PhD thesis but it's not there yet. So we're gonna give you 18 months and a plan, a roadmap to get you there. And then the fourth option is they just fail you outright. Cause they're like, you don't have what it takes. So I'm in London, 2006, 
in the London Consortium program at Birkbeck College, University of London. Um, I'm way out of my depth to, in museum studies. I just haven't ever really studied museums and I know nothing about the discourse, know nothing about the history. It takes me a while to get there. And lots and lots and lots of days at the British Library, okay? Mm. Comes to 2010, basically some visa thing. They actually, in the, in the UK, they very much want you to come, hurry up, get your thing done and go home. Um, I had a visa kerfuffle. Um, I made the mistake of sending in a form or sitting on a form thinking that it was going to be fine and it wasn't fine because you actually, what it asked me to do is actually have a certain amount of money in the bank continually for a period. And I didn't grok that at the time. So I basically had to leave. So I had my Viva, I think five, I think five months before um, I had to leave and they referred my PhD thesis. They were right to because it was awful. Looking back on it, it was I was completely unprepared for this. Um, it just I'm not I'm a slow learner on some things. Got to the U.S. Went to California for a friend's wedding. Thought that I would settle back there because I'd come from California. But then we talked about it and realized that it would be better off in New York because in New York I wouldn't need a car. So. I, what little money I had with me, I could like kind of start up again. Got to New York. My friend Lawrence said, you can live with me. Um, lives on the Upper West Side, physical therapist, um, professional guy, gay man. Um, one of my oldest friends, nearest, I, I've known him since I was 17. Um, and so he went out with me and we bought a futon and I basically slept on, Lawrence's couch for the next two and a half years while I went from crappy job to crappy job and um, walked up to um, Columbia to use their libraries to do my research and writing. I should shout out the New York Public Library System too here because they have this um, scheme, MARLI, they call it's short for M-A-R-L-I, which is basically a research sort of initiative that allows independent scholars to use the libraries at Columbia and at NYU. Got my PhD done, a thesis done the second time, handed it in. I had to wait a year for them to read it, a year, because whatever, administrative snafu. They read it and they referred it again. And at this time I was out of work, did not have a job. Um, I felt like it took me a month to get out of bed after that, after that happened. And I've yet, I found it within myself to get back on the horse and get back to the libraries at Columbia. Took a year and a half, I redid it and I handed it in and I got my PhD in 2015. Now here's the thing, as painful as that was, when they referred it the second time, and I had to go back and work at it again, it actually made me a smarter researcher. It actually made me a better writer and a better thinker. It did. Yeah. As awful as that was, um, they were right to do that. But kudos to you to not be um, discouraged and to do it again twice. And to yeah. in between and all that with all the other, but it's, it's fantastic, good for you. Because it's hard, yeah. and actually if you look at it, if you look at PhD programs, I think, Almost two thirds of PhD candidates never finish the degree. 
it's actually very uncommon to to finish the degree. So good for you to have. To, I mean, to be sent back to redo it is really um, just draining because you've worked on it so much and then you have to redo the whole thing. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I, it was a moment when I felt when I got the PhD finally. I mean, when I actually got it was later, but the, when they told me that I'd passed with corrections, two small corrections. Um, not in that very moment did I feel pride in myself, but I think a kind of steady trickle of pride sort of ebbed into my life after because, yeah, there are very few people who would have the fortitude to do that. And yeah. I know that about myself at the very least, that I'm that resilient. I can do that thing. That's so impressive. And it's also nice to hear that the process, as brutal as it must have been um, actually yielded a result even beyond the satisfaction you take in the achievement, which is that it sharpened your abilities as a writer, as a researcher. And that's what one hopes, you know, as on the other side of it as a professor, you know, you hope that the kind of brutal honesty you bring to a, a student's paper or dissertation will will be constructive for them. And that's not always the case. So it's right. it's great to hear that that process actually brought you something that has been lasting beyond the PhD itself even. Yep. Agreed, uh, agreed. If you were to die and come back as another person or as a thing, who or what would that be? Okay, this is an easy answer. And I'm gonna reveal something that I about myself that I'm, Maybe so, maybe somewhat unpalatable for people. I am a bit of a misanthrope. I really am not thrilled with this whole, and I'm waving my hand around, <laughs> drama. Um, I really don't like how human beings generally behave. So if I were to come back, if I were to be reincarnated, please, please, please let me be just a rock. Nothing with consciousness. <laughs> Because <laughs> honestly, when evolution took the the risk of, of of developing, you know, giving an animal a bigger brain, and we eventually developed consciousness with all that kind of um, uh, uh, sort of um, mindful ability, what we eventually became are people who willingly destroy the very environment we take life we 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 live in like we literally it sustains our lives and we intentionally destroy it which is just batshit crazy two despite i mean how 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 how, how much how long is our recorded history it's like 3000 years maybe um, or did that just be yeah, not that much longer, right? Right, right. I mean, I know we've been doing paintings and art for about... There's oral history. You, so you could say, like, Aboriginal history is like 60,000. That's an oral transmission. So recorded, okay. written down. So much longer. Okay, right, okay, right. So we've had... We've been at this for a while. We've been telling each other stories for a while about who <laughs> we are and what we want and how we want to get these things. And we... And it took until, I think it was 1947, for us as a species to codify a set of convictions that recognizes the innate humanity of each of us 
and recognizes that we have a responsibility to each of us to not fuck that up, to not just demean that or not just kill that or not just um, throw that into a ditch, right? Like to recognize our basic humanity outside of the strictures of some notion of a God bestowing some sort of divine something on us, right? 1947, UN Declaration of Human Rights. Up until that point, we have still been exploiting and hurting and killing and maiming each other for fucking profit. But I mean, the stories repeat, right? I mean, what the Dutch did in Africa, oh, what, what the English did in the Caribbean, what um, Israelis have done to Palestinians. Like, I mean, it's just, it's breathtaking how badly we screw up being human beings. So I kind of like, if I'm reincarnated, please, no, I don't, I'm done. I'm good. I, I, I did this once, I'm good with that. Rock, okay. Rock. <laughs> I'm going to keep on thinking about that. Um, uh, Seth, Seth, where would you most like to live? Eh, might be Barcelona. I really like that city. And I love the pace, great food, great art. It's kind of what I need. Hmm. Sounds good. What is your most treasured possession? Wow, that's tough. Um, oh, oh, that's tough. I'm looking around the room like, what is my most treasured possession? <laughs> I'm going to say, okay, yeah. I'm gonna, yeah, the truth is my intellect. Yeah. My intellect is my most treasured possession. Yeah. What do you regard as the lowest depth of misery? Being a poor child somewhere in, you know, one of the poorest places on the planet where your life chances are barely past teenage years. I mean, I think that those are places with very little hope. Um, and, and, there's, and those are places where that, that restrict the sort of, the sort of um, possibility of human agency so much that it's, it's almost like agency doesn't matter. It's all structure. Um, I, I think those are the most miserable conditions. We actually interviewed um, Hugh Evans, who runs this organization. One of the organizations he runs, he started as Global Citizen, which is about the relief of extreme poverty. Because he also feels that um, extreme poverty is the most um, constricting or the most inhumane dimension of life for people. That actually, out of poverty, this kind of poverty that afflicts you know, hundreds of millions, if not a billion people, that that has to be reduced and just sort of a fundamental condition. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Agreed. I mean, there's just there's just there's just little to no hope for these folks. It's it's not there. So, what would be your favorite occupation? We're assuming if you would be doing something you're not doing right now, but it could be that. I really love what I do. Uh, if I had to choose another occupation, it might be God. I just had something in my head, and it went out of my head. Um, the, well, I think the first thing that really popped in was 
I'd, I'd love to be a fencer. Like, but you can't be a fencer until you're like 50s. This is the thing. Like, I used to fence and I wasn't, I wasn't as good at it as I would like to have been. Um, but yeah, I mean, if there was a way, I guess, to be like a, a fencing coach or an, um, the coach for an Olympic team or something like that, I wouldn't mind that. I think this is the moment during lockdown. You can learn the trumpet and there's probably YouTube coaches on, on fencing. You could just spar or what, I don't even know what it's called. So this is this may be the moment for all of us to cultivate those hidden aspirations. So. Yes, maybe, maybe. <laughs> Guy de Maupassant, who's one of my favorite French writers, was apparently an incredibly accomplished fencer. And that was like the big kind of lady-killing sport yes. back in the day. Because yes. you could be cut a dashing figure, fighting duels and things. And yes. it always just made me so badass, the, yeah. the thing. And it's hard, right? It's, it's hard. Super, it's super hard. It oh. is it is ridiculously hard. I mean, people think that it's just it just looks elegant or whatever, but you yeah. have to be in that position and then lunge and then recover lunge and you have to hand-eye coordination, all of it. I mean, it's like um apparently like the point, the tip of a foil is the fastest moving thing in all sports, aside from um 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 bullets in in, uh, in in guns like yeah that's it's it's incredibly fast and and requires an immense amount of coordination um yeah, it's a beautiful sport what is your most most marked characteristic and we assume that this means the quality in you that you believe is most pronounced to others when they first meet you or when they get to know you Okay, so those are two, I'm going to be persnickety here and say these are two different things. When they first get to meet me and when they get to know me are going to be two things. Okay. Because I think the, fir like the first thing, because the, way is, the world is the way it is, is that I'm a black man. Like that's the first thing people generally notice. Um, black male. Hmm. Um, because, and you know how, I don't have to tell you both how fraught that is in this political context yeah political social economic context although the nice thing is on this podcast some people would not have known both of those characteristics they would have probably recognized male voice but wouldn't necessarily know you're black so so now we're going to what would people know about you once they get to know you precisely i think they would get to know that i'm a really i'm hoping <laughs> That I'm a really rigorous thinker. That I I just I don't I, I once said this to my boss when oh, I had to edit something that was a little bit that required a little bit of finesse. Uh, and he was worried about whether I could be critical enough or not. And I said, Harag, I can't turn it off. Like I don't, that doesn't stop. I'm always thinking, I'm always sort of looking at the thing, parsing the thing, seeing how it works, looking at it from an oblique angle, wondering how it came together and what it means. I, I, I would imagine that people would get to know that about me. Well, and that's, you did that in this answer, in fact. So, <laughs> so you've given it a, a wonderful nutshell demonstration, I think. Right. What do you most value, Seth, in your friends? Ah, uh, in my friends. I think this is true for all my, my dear friends. They do something 
that I really admire that I don't quite do as well. Like I have a friend who, um, his name's Travis. Um, I do a podcast for Travis called the American age. Travis is one of the most articulate human beings I know. And he has a grasp of history and it's particularly the history of philosophical thought. Um, and not just in the West, um, that I don't have. And I admire that about him. And I think with all my friends, there are different aspects. Um, um, Stephen is incredibly funny um, in really unexpected ways. And so is Ayana. And Lawrence has this like sort of wholly formed worldview that he doesn't deviate from. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. They all have things about them that um, are admirable to me, and I think that's part of the reason why they're my friends. Who are your favorite writers? Oh God, we're gonna be here for a while. Um, uh, I'm just looking at my bookcase, and I'll start naming a few. Um, Toni Morrison, you know, obviously. Um, Sylvia Plath was huge for me. Sylvia really? Plath was yeah, Sylvia Plath was an, an was a key part of my development. Um, because when I was um, 17, so I grew up in this really patriarchal religious household, um, Jamaican immigrant um, aspirational household, and there was no art. Um, there was no visual art. I should say there was no um poetry we never went to a museum or anything like that um i discovered the life that i have now basically through uh, the luck of having my mother study at hunter college because she wanted to be a registered nurse she came in as a teacher from jamaica and she um, changed careers to become a registered nurse great choice um she what i'm blanking on the name right now but there's uh, there's a kind of um, notion that um, a student should be well-rounded, so they have blank, blank curricula. It's like, even if you're a, a nursing student, you have to take humanity subjects. So, like liberal arts or something like that. Like a yes, liberal arts. Yeah. That, that's the, the idea of a liberal arts education. So my mom had Ernest Hemingway, John Steinbeck, Sylvia Plath in the... Um, bookcase in the living room at one point and i think if i'd asked her how they, were, they got there she wouldn't have known but i'm pretty sure it came from her liberal arts classes at hunter and i started reading sylvia plath when i was 17 and i swear i memorized like six or seven poems in that last book ariel that's the book that i found in my in my um living room bookcase so she was huge for me um, other poets like James Wright, Robert Pinsky, oh, Philip Levine, fantastic, Robert Creeley, um, Denise Levertov is great. Um, other um, novelists like, um, oh, what's his name? Uh, J.M. Kutsi. I never know how to pronounce his last name. Kutsi, yeah, I think. Kutsi. Oh, he's great. He's brilliant. He's brilliant. Um, devastating. Um, Margaret Atwood. Oh, um, one of my favorite books of all time, um, Ursula K. 
Ursula K. Le Guin, Left Hand of Darkness. Oh. Brilliant book. Brilliant, brilliant book. So I should just say, like, let me just chart the course. I'm going to cut to the chase. When I was a kid, I started reading fairy tales and Norse myth and legends and Greek myths and legends, and then got into science fiction. And right around late teenage years, got into literature. And that's when I started reading Sylvia Plath and started reading John Steinbeck. And then it kind of took off from there. And so since that time, I've moved more towards reading a lot of shit I had to read for my PhD thesis. And um, I'm only kind of creeping back towards fiction these days, fiction and poetry. Um, oh, and I should shout out one of my favorite poets who I'm actually following on Twitter, Jory Graham. Oh, she is amazing. Yeah, Jory Graham is, is the real deal. Um, yeah. yeah, so all of those people. I also like that you found her on Twitter. I'm not really a social media person, but it's great to think of these great poets and critics. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Twitter. Um, who is your hero or heroine of fiction? And Willie and I have expanded that to include television, film, your favorite character or characters. Ooh. Who is my favorite? Well... It might be, uh, I'm going to, I think I'm going to mess up this answer. <laughs> I'm going to say this and it's not, and then later on I'm going to be like, no, it was the wrong <laughs> thing to say. <laughs> God damn it. Um, he, he really is one of my favorite though, but I don't think he's someone to emulate. I really love um, Holden Caulfield and Catching a Rye. Sure. Um, yeah. I, I really... I just, I guess I identify with him because he has such a hard time coming into the adult world and he was just really resisting it uh, with all his might. And I understand why, because the adult world is difficult and it's really hard to navigate and it's, and it's in some ways fundamentally dishonest. I think that we spend a lot of our times, our time lying to each other and I think Holden just was, he wanted the truth of that kind of emotional relationship that he had with his sister, Phoebe. Yeah. He wanted that everywhere and he just couldn't get that. Um, so I do identify with that. Hmm. Um, but I also think I'm a grown up and I am in the adult world and I want to be here. Um, and I want to yeah. actually, I want to spend time with other adults. So, you know. Six of one, half a dozen of another, I suppose. Right, sure. Which historical figure do you most identify with? Well, <laughs> it's going to sound highfalutin if I say Muhammad Ali, but it's not. I want to say, <laughs> I want to say this. I don't identify with him so much as admire him. I mean, he's the closest one. He's for me to someone who's a real live hero he literally had his um qualifications taken away for his protest of the vietnam war right and for his yeah. his acting from a place of conviction about um the way black people were being treated in america 
they stripped him of his title uh, that he fought to get, and he and he, he I don't know if he accepted it, but he took the hit and he came back and fought his way to the top again. Um, that's just that's just principled. Like, yeah. You know, he he had to drive a cab or whatever during the the time he was um, stripped of his uh, of his titles, and he did it. I mean that's that's a man of principle. That's that's a person of principle. That's the person I want to be. There's something I guess there's something almost parallel in the way I guess that um, I fought for my PhD and that you know I was I was turned back a, a few times. I had really really awful jobs while I was working on this thing, but I stuck, stuck with it and I, and I eventually got it. So. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a wonderful answer. I didn't know that he'd had to drive a cab and after all that. So it's really like taking the hit, you know, living on principle and really suffering the consequences of it is, um, is all the more admirable. Um, What are your favorite names? Favorite names? Yeah. Oh. Oh. Um. Hmm. Names. That's interesting. Um. Oh, you know what? Um. What's his name? Chris, uh, who is married to Gwyneth Paltrow, the guy who, um, is the lead singer for Coldplay. Chris something. Chris Martin. Chris Martin. Yes. I think he named his daughter Apple. Yeah, and I um and I actually really like that. It's a little bit corny, but I actually really think there's just something quite sweet about that. Like Apple, that is um, nice. I, I do I do genuinely like that. I like uh, I do tend to like names with history to them too. Like I, um, I do like names like Caroline or names like. Um, I don't know. Like, I think I, sometimes I fantasize that if I had a son, I would name him something crazy like Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> cool. But, I mean, right, but it could go one or two ways, right? Like, it could be, like, really cool, and he would, like, flourish under that name, or it could be really bad for him for, like, the is first, your first... Is your first name is Seth your full name? It is not. Um, this is a name that I chose for myself. Well, in some ways, it was my friends helped me um, find it. So I was named after my father, Joseph. And uh, I always hated the name because inevitably it was always shortened to Joe. Everybody would end up fucking calling me Joe, which I despise. And then in college, um, I think it was like, yeah, my friend Lawrence and my other friend, Damien slash Mingus, um, uh, started calling me Seth um, because it seemed to fit. Like, uh, and then I legally changed my name. I think when I was out in California, uh, because it is, it is, it makes it really made sense to me at that point in my life to choose a name for, or recognize that I needed to choose a name for myself and not sort of being within my father's shadow. And I don't have a great relationship with my father. Anyway, he was a really particularly um, mean-spirited and abusive parent when I was a child. So it also felt useful to 
find a way to sort of sever that tie. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, what is it that you most dislike? Period? Yep. Period. Well, I think I said it earlier when I went on my sort of screed about, <clears throat> about how human beings fail at being human beings. Uh, I, don't, I really don't like that. I just, I think that we, a long time ago, should have gotten our shit together as a species. And the fact that we still do this I just find just reprehensible and uh, uh, incomprehensible. I just don't get it. What is your greatest regret? Wow. I don't I have a lot of little regrets, but I have like a great one. I, I'm in fact, in fact, thinking about it, I just think my life has turned out pretty well. I mean, it took me a long time to get here, but I love my life now. I, I actually get to talk about things that are meaningful and um, there was a time... Hmm, there was a time when I was around, was I, yeah, my late teen years, when I was having a conversation with my father, and my father was just not, as I sort of alluded to, not a very supportive person and didn't ever, I don't think, tell me that he believed in me. I was trying to explain to him why I wanted to go to school for, I think it was an English degree or something, or I wanted to study what I wanted to study. Because he just wanted me to be a doctor or a lawyer or something. And he said, well, he asked me some semi-rhetorical question, like, well, what do you want to do with your life? What do you want to, what do you want, what do you want to have? And I said, I think I really just want to have interesting conversations. And it's true. That's actually what I want to have. I want to have interesting, provocative conversations in which I can learn something. And I actually do get to do that. I have interesting conversations with people like you with art, with curators, with other artists, with, um, with teachers and writers and poets. And um, that is very much the life I want to have. So I don't have any major regrets because I got here. Nice. Yeah. How would you like to die? Hmm. Good question. I'm not afraid of dying. Um, I'm black. In fact, I think it's very important that at some point I'm going to die. Um, that's a good thing. I do not want to live forever. I would rather die before, and I don't know whether I'm a candidate for this, but my mom has pretty severe dementia now. I'd like to die before that happens to me, if that is in the cards for me. Um, and I suppose passing away in my sleep is fine. Or, um, and I also wouldn't mind going out in some dramatic fashion, like, you know, car hurtling off a cliff, something like that. That's fine too. Because, you know, as long as the time of dying is short, that's, that's the key thing. What is your motto, if you have one? 
I don't think I have a motto. I think they would change depending on the day you ask me. So today, my motto might be Live your life with integrity. That's a good motto. Yeah. That is a good one. We have one other question. Um, uh, you may have already answered it. <laughs> uh, who would you like to hear as a guest on this podcast? We add this question. That was not on Proust's original questionnaire. And it would be someone living, ideally, because we, we are looking for your ideas for who else we might talk to. Right. Yeah, well, Brian Stevenson would be one. Like, I would tune in to hear Brian Stevenson. Absolutely. Um, um, who else? It's like someone really, you know, who, oh, I, I heard him the other day at New York Live Arts, and he's a fantastic public speaker, really has a lot to say, and this is just a really thoughtful human being, Marlon James. Hmm. I really like Marlon James. The writer. The yeah. writer, the Jamaican writer. Yeah. Really awesome guy. Um, and, well, let me think of an artist, too, because, you know, that's the water I swim in. Um, really wonderful, articulate artists who I know. I would, oh yeah, I really like Derek Forger, F-O-R-D-J-O-U-R. Derek is really, really smart. Um, he's, he's, he's coming up in the ranks. He's doing quite well for himself. Just a really thoughtful thinker too. I like him a lot. And, um, and uh, I want to recommend a woman, too. Um, um, oh, yeah, she'd be really good, actually, she, because she's really quirky and, and will give you unexpected answers, but super smart. Ayana Evans, performance artist. She does this thing in a, like, neon cat suit. And <laughs> great. Yeah, I mean, she does things like wear signs that said, I just came here to find a husband. She is freaking brilliant. I really like her. She's awesome. So that's a great suggestion. Thank you. That's actually really, really great. And what uh, Carrie and I do, we just contact people and um, try to persuade them to share their deepest insights with us on this podcast. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, and in that sense, you've been our ideal guest. Thank you for the... Uh, the honesty and the thoughtfulness you've brought to these questions and for the time you've lavished upon us, it's, it's really a privilege for us. So thank you, Seth. Yeah. Thank you. I'm, I'm really glad to be here and glad to be a part of this. Um, um, you know, I'm starting to kind of develop a friendship with Uli. So it's really, it's really nice. I, I felt really chuffed when he invited me. I was like, Oh, that's really sweet. I like that. That's great. So thank you. This is our second, uh, event during lockdown we're doing on zoom so yeah. part of a panel with billy Chabot frank and lila ashton harris yeah. artists a photographer and a filmmaker and they had a really amazing conversation a couple of weeks ago so thanks for for being joining us again in this zoom um dimension yeah definitely okay. all right all right, all right. All right. All right. thank you take care thank you stay well bye